Welcome to the Delling Pod with me, James Delling Pod. And I know I always say how excited I am about this week's guest, but I really am excited about this week's guest. His name is Andy No. I know I've pronounced it wrong, Andy. Just just say it once so we know how it's really pronounced. Andy. The Vietnamese way is no, but I accept no. 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 How's that? No. Close. Close. Yeah. I'll accept it. Thank you. Good. Um, yeah, so obviously you've answered the uh, question about where you are from ethnically or Vietnamese. Your parents were refugees? Yes. From, from like the Vietnam War? Yes, from the former South Vietnam. So my father was sent to re-education camp after the country reuni- reunified as a communist state in 1975. My mother's family was middle class, so they were considered bourgeois and they had the properties and business confiscated and she was a teenager at that time and they were sent to labor camp and uh my parents left in 1979 uh originally first came to indonesia at a unhcr camp a refugee camp and waited and went through the long legal process for settlement elsewhere and um i'm very grateful that the united states uh ultimately accepted them yeah. yeah. Well, so you've got some history with the communists then. I do. <laughs> so your, your parents parents suffered at the hands of communists, and now, of course, you have suffered at the hands of, well, would you, would you call them communists or fascists? I'm not sure there's much difference, is it? But we'll talk about that a bit later on, about your, your horrible experiences at the hands of Antifa. Uh, but first of all, I wanted to talk to you about, you live in Portland, Oregon. Now, I've been to Oregon Briefly, I, I was it was in the nineties, and I went on a road trip with an American friend of mine. We were looking for Oregon Pinot Noir, which apparently is famously jammy, and and it was was quite a thing in the nineties. I don't know whether it still is, but anyway, I thought of Oregon as a kind of what sort of quite rustic, probably the kind of place you'd get nice cafes selling nice cakes and things, and probably sort of artisanal produce that kind of thing, but. Portland, from what I see of your films and things, seems to have turned into a kind of battleground. Tell me more about it. I'll start off with the wonderful things about Portland. So it's a very progressive city and people, it attracts lots of creative people, artists and cooks and uh, musicians. And everybody's always trying to outdo one another to make, redo um, something traditional, in a brand new way, for example, who can come up with the craziest ice cream flavors or donut flavors. These things have always um, made Portland quite a nice place to visit and to, 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 to live in even. At the same time, because it's a political monoculture, it's entirely progressive, this has now bred this tolerance for political violence. Um, I think what happened after 2016 when Donald Trump was um, elected, or won won the election, I should say, in November, um, because it was such a shock to the country and the world, um, Portland in particular, just the people went crazy. Went postal. 
Yeah, yeah. you could say uh, there was violent rioting on the streets. There was a million dollars in damage done to uh, property and businesses. And that was the first time that I came eye to eye with this nebulous movement called Antifa. That was when in the streets of downtown, it seemed kind of like a war zone. I remember it was quite shocking seeing people starting fires on the streets, running around with bats while wearing masks and destroying properties and anything that they thought was a representation of capitalism. So it was the election of Donald Trump was just a pretense for um, violent extremists to to go out and destroy. Um, but since then, the problem that we've been having continually over and over are um, that violence against property now has migrated to violence against uh, individuals, against bodies, against people. Can we just rewind a bit? You, you grew up in, have you spent all your life in, in, in Portland? Almost all my life. So presumably you can remember a, a golden era when Portland was about groovy ice cream flavours and I don't know, artisanal coffee rolls and whatever else you get in kind of lefty um, hipster hipster zones. Was that, was that the kind of thing? Yeah, Portland has a um, expressions they adopt and Portland is really proud of it. They say, keep Portland weird. That, right. that was what, uh, you know, made Portland quirky. It's nice. We have the cafes, the coffee, the, like I said, the bizarre ice cream and donuts, donut flavors, and the progressive politics that came with us. And then at the same time, now we're seeing the dark face of what comes with this sort of, I think what I, what I described is that there's no counterpoise. So the ideas on, on the left and far left, um, they just sort of radicalize in their own echo chambers. It's like, you can never be um, too extreme. And this is, as I discuss and have spoken with people who are sympathetic to Antifa or ally themselves with that movement, they really can't even pinpoint a time when their activities or protests or, or violence crosses a line. For them, it seems like really they live by, by any means necessary to shut down what they view as um, fascist, but the de definition of fascist is constantly changing and um, basically now it's used to apply to any ideological opponent. It doesn't even have Yeah. yeah. Did, was was Antifa essentially the, the yin to President Trump's yang or vice versa? Was, did, did Antifa exist as a viable force before, before Trump got elected? Yeah, so Antifa as a movement sort of descends from uh, anti-racist skinhead um, subculture from the 80s. And they claim to carry the legacy of the anti-fascists from the interwar years. Uh, that's something I disagree with, but, but that's what they say. They're part of that history. Um, and they've always existed as a fringe movement, particularly in Western Europe. It's been quite active in Germany. Um, but 2016 in the United States became such a huge propaganda win for them because they pointed to the, his, the election of, of Donald Trump as a very clear example of what they viewed as ascendant uh, fascism. Yeah. And so that was used to radicalize and recruit people in a way that 
I don't think they've had numbers in this size ever before, for sure not in America. And um, what makes Antifa hard to describe is they're not a formalized organization of where there's a membership or anything. It's really nebulous and you have it. It's a coalition of people who can identify any, anywhere from being um, a communist to an anarchist to a socialist. Um, so right now in America, in the, in the political world, what some lawmakers are struggling with is how do we, if we're going to define Antifa as an extremist movement, how do we do that when it's not a group in the same way as like a K, the KKK is an organization, yeah. for example? Yes, so there's no official membership. Correct. There's no... Obviously, they, they, they would keep no record. So suppose I wanted to join Antifa. Presumably, all I just need to do is turn up with a with a mask and a willingness to commit extreme violence, and I'd be in. Is that right? Yeah, um, although from what I've learned, um, they have different factions in what you could call maybe cells or chapters in different cities. So in Portland, there actually is a pseudo organization it's called row city antifa and they're the organization that claimed uh the beating and robbery of me in june of, uh, of this year and they have um facebook page twitter page and they do organize and they host their own events they have their own fundraisers so on the one hand even though antifa is an ideology not a group it some in some places they have taken on elements of being more formalized as a group. Right. And that's where um, there's been no research into this. Um, it's, it's really recent. Um, these organizations are all new and recent. And so there's been for sure no academic research. And in terms of like, even the local authorities are struggling to grasp and understand what the, what we're dealing with here. Well. I can see one reason why there's been not much research into Antifa, and, you, and you're going to tell me the story about how, about what happened to you that that day. So give me start at the beginning. Okay, so since 2016, there's been these every few months, some right wing groups will organize some type of demonstration in Portland or near, yeah, in Portland. For example, it could be something as simple as a flag-waving event or one where speakers are just shouting over a bullhorn. Very informal events. These groups are tiny. However, any time there's a right-wing presence in Portland, the Antifa response is, like, overwhelming. And they put out all this propaganda about how the people who are coming in are literally armed, violent, white supremacists, willing and able to kill people at any time. And we need to come out in such numbers that, to defend ourselves and push them out. And so when they're using that type of language, the average Portlander who is left-wing and progressive, who may not be more aware of the extreme radical ideas of Antifa as the movement, but broadly aligned with their opposition to the right wing or the far right, they'll come and support them. Some of them will do the small number of them will do the black block, which is the wearing of the mask and the all and the the black from head to toe. And they do that so that some when some of them commit crimes, they can easily melt back into the group. 
Um, there's a much larger, like Antifa, there's been so much focus on just the street violence and the hooliganism. And what I'm trying to focus to bring more attention to is, is their actual ideology because the number of people doing violence on the streets is very small. But what's concerning to me is that their ideology is gaining some type of mainstream momentum. And you can see it in, particularly in American media, the number of pundits and journalists who whitewash and sort of normalize the tactics and beliefs of Antifa. So that's a little bit of the background. In June, on June um, in 2019, at the very end, I was covering that Antifa protest. They were protesting a Proud Boys flag waving event. And I work as a journalist. Uh, I, I write, I've written for the Wall Street Journal, the Nas uh, National Review, the uh, New York Post, a number of mainstream publications. And I also do uh, video work. So that day was really no different as I've covered before. Although, um, as my profile has risen, Rose City Antifa and their allies have voiced their displeasure with my criticism of the extremism. So they have been sort of ratcheting up a lot of online threats against me. And on the 29th of June, I came with goggles and my camera. I was excited to try out a new GoPro. I originally put on a helmet that day. A lot of journalists now will come to Portland with bulletproof vests and helmets. And I didn't, I chose to not have any of that because I really wanted people to see that you can see my face, you know who I am, I'm not here to fight. Yeah. I'm here to document what's happening. Um, but in their eyes, these people are so radicalized in their beliefs. They don't know anything about me, but they've been told that I'm a Nazi or a, a propagandist. So when I first got there, they began to throw uh, what I think were milkshakes at me, cups of these, this white liquid on my head and in my face. And this was done right in the really yards away from the the police who were, this was a, in a park and the police were on the perimeter. And I reported it to police right away. I would point out the suspect. I said, this person right here. And the police every time would let me know that they would not intervene, would not detain, question, or speak to the suspect because that could incite the crowd. And this is what I've been told over and over. I have yeah. been attacked previously earlier this year before the June and was told the same thing. So that was my frustration for that day with the police. But I continued on. I was just like, okay, dumping liquids and stuff on me, I can take it, fine. What shocked me and completely, I think shocked the world, what happened soon after that was once they started marching, they were chanting, no hate, no fear. And we were in the heart of downtown Portland, right in front of the Justice Center, which houses our sheriff's office, courtrooms, uh, uh, Portland Police Precinct. So right in front of all these institutions that represent the rule of law or literal institutions that uphold the law, this was where this mob of people in Black Bloc attacked me in a very brutal way. So the video that went viral, really, it captures only the second half. So the first thing that happened was somebody or, or, or maybe perhaps more than one hit me really hard in the back of the head. 
I'm a very what, with, a, with a fist. Or... I think so. Yeah. I don't know what it was. I'm a very passive person. You, as you've interacted with me, you could probably sense that. I've never been in a fight, so I didn't even know what was had happened to me first when I was knocked forward, and before I could even gather my my footing, then all the punches kept coming to my face, more to my head. Um, in the in, in the, the the course of that attack, um, they had ripped my earlobe, so I was bleeding. Um, and then the mob started pelting all the, like eggs and other hot objects and in, in what was ostensibly milkshakes at my face. So I couldn't even see which way to leave. All I was thinking throughout this was like, is this really happening? The police must be coming in to, they'll help me yeah, yeah, at any point. Yeah, you think. And it never happened. And so uh, I stumbled away and started losing my balance, sat on the ground. Somebody called the police. The ambulance, the ambulance couldn't come and get me because the streets have been shut down by the rioters who are now moving forward to another part of downtown. So I wasn't the only one that was attacked that day. You may have seen some of the other video, which included them um, hitting an, an older man on, on the head and his face was completely bloodied from that attack. There was another man who was hit on the head, I think with a crowbar or some, some object like that and had really severe lacerations on his head so you know like like these brutal scenes of political violence is almost routine it, it is routine in Portland it's banality and now we're, you know we, we just came over from a weekend uh, August 17th, the 17th of August of more political violence and the mayor described that one as uh, mostly peaceful and, I, and, and his metric for that was that nobody died and that, that's where we are in Portland. So when you were experiencing this, were you, were you frightened or was it just more so quick that you didn't really know what was going on? It was so quick that I didn't know what was going on. Um, when I, I did a live stream when I was sitting on the ground and waiting for the ambulance to come, which never did, by the way. I had to walk to the, back to the Central Police Precinct to get help. But there's that video that I stream, which is still on my Twitter, and then I, I could see my face in it. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm bleeding. My eyes are starting to swell with blood. Like, this was a lot more severe than I thought. And once I was taken to hospital uh, in, in, in emergency, they did a, a CT scan of my head um, because of the nature of the attack, which was targeting my face and, and the back of my head, which confirmed a brain hemorrhage. And I didn't even really know what that meant. I was like, okay, like, when do I get to leave? And they were like, oh, you're not, we're keeping you here. We're going to have to, and you're not going to be able to sleep either. I was really tired. I wanted to rest. And um, they had to keep checking on me every hour as these neurological tests because the brain bleed could be, it's potentially dead, deadly. Yeah. Um, so since then, I've been working on recovery. I've been having issues with memory. I have various forms of therapy to go through. And there's just been... Like seeing the response online, there was a very large outpouring of support, of course. But at the same time, there was a lot of people who justified the beating and robbery of me. Said that I wanted it, brought it on myself. These are the, were the same people who believe Justice Mollet, the same people who talk about believing victims of assault. Um, but I think I was the wrong type of victim because I didn't like my views. So... Um, that was disheartening to see, um, but also put into 
stark clarity um, the polarization um, among some thought leaders um, in America. I don't, I don't know much about the American healthcare system, but presumably, are you on the hook for all your medical costs? So fortunately, there was a GoFundMe that was started yeah. by Michelle Malkin, a conservative yeah. uh, American writer. Very kind of her. And through there, there was such a large outpouring of support that I'm taken care of because of that. I'm really lucky. There, you know, the, the other people who were injured that day, I don't think they had that same outpouring of support. And if I had been somebody who didn't have the following that I had, I would have just fallen through the cracks again. Like the many other citizens in Portland that have been attacked before me who have um, no ability to really get the story out there. And so um, there's a legal fund that's been launched for me um, by nonprofit Publius Lex. And, you know, for people who want to join into helping me seek justice, because it's been now over seven weeks since what happened, there's not been a single arrest, not one. Nobody's been held to account. So I've grown very cynical about the police investigation for that. So with the legal fund... Presumably the police must have... Do they take video footage of these events? Well, it happened right in front of the Justice Center, so I would assume that there would be lots of um, CCTV footage. Yes, there was footage that was recorded from the people around me as it was happening. So there's lots of footage. I think some of the issues that compound finding suspects were that most of the people who were beating me were masked. Yeah, but I know how the internet works. I know how 4chan works. Basically, <laughs> those those autistic kids can can work out anything and find track them. I mean, I've I've seen stuff on the internet of of Antifa being unmasked. They know that we know who they all are. The police. It's not within. Uh, it's it's easy for the police to find out who they are. Here's a frustrating thing. Yes, one person was identified conclusively, but he has not been arrested yet. Yet. Yeah. yeah. But look, I come from England, obviously, and we look across the pond at the American cops and we think they're basically like Judge Dredd. They're going to, they don't take prisoners. And I find it really shocking that you can be beaten with, within an inch of your life, being given brain damage, for God's sake, in front of the county courthouse, whatever it was. What did you say? The... Yeah, the, the, the administrative H, HQ of the, of the police and so on. And um, the bad guys get away with it. Yes. No, I, I thought that even in left-wing cities, there were at least enough right-wing people, people who wanted to become cops. Are you saying that all the, all the cops are progressive loons as well? No, I've been very careful to not blame the rank-and-file officers. Right. They're following orders and instructions for how to police in Portland. Yeah. And Portland has a very particular and strange governance system in that our mayor is also a police commissioner. Right. That's an old system, I think, that was inherited from the days of the Wild West. And most cities in America have changed that long, long ago because you can see the variables that would lead to conflicts of interest because a mayor is up, he's up for re-election, he's... can easily fall victim to the um, political desires and bias of the constituency. In Portland, as a progressive city, is very anti-police. They absolutely hate police. So 
It's not my perception based on things that the mayor have said previously other, after other Antifa attacks, um, not just on people, but even on government institutions where he doesn't want police to enforce the law. Right. But is what, what's the demographic of, of, of Portland? Is it, is it just kind of white liberals or is it, I mean, what... I'm very glad you asked this question. I don't get asked it a lot, but I think it brings up an important point. So Portland is a white majority city. It is, yes, white liberals, white progressives. And the demographics, I think, is actually relevant to this discussion. It's been described as uh, one of America's whitest cities. And what I've encountered over and over living there, growing up there, and particularly in more recent years, is that... um, because of the the white the politics as well as the demographics, it creates fertile ground for really toxic white guilt in a way that right. causes them to um, treat all people of color or they think people of color just by virtue of their ethnicity as victims. And so they like overcompensate, want to go all out to be protectors and saviors. I think that has an element of why these numbers show up in such large masses at any of these demonstrations. I mean, on on the 29th of June when I was attacked, the, I mean, the Proud Boys event had maybe less than two dozen people probably. Right. You know, and you have like the showing of hundreds and hundreds of people in opposition. It's just... Um, I think, you know, one part of it is virtue signaling, but this is like virtual signaling on steroids where there's an element in a, in, a, in a fringe of those people who are willing to literally go out with weapons and attack and maim and hurt people that they think are white supremacists. Do you not think they appreciate the irony of, of demonstrating their... Um, their caringness by beating up um, the son of Vietnamese refugees. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I I try not to play too much into that identity politics game. Sure. But what's fascinating is that on the last day of Gay Pride, um, I, you know what happened to me as a gay person of color getting beaten up like that by primarily white people i assume most people yeah, in, yeah. in antifa are white and uh to them they just view they the words what's telling is that the words they use to describe me collaborator bootlicker traitor so they don't view like my so-called like vulnerable traits don't no longer mean anything because i'm collaborating with the enemy right yes so um, there was some very vicious stuff, particularly said about, as I've talked a bit more about my family's experience living through a Marxist revolution, there's been those who are sympathetic to Antifa who have said that my family deserved the experience in the labor camps and the re-education camps because they were traitors to their own people. Did, by the way, did your, have your parents ever talked about what, what they went through in the labor camps? Just bits and pieces here. I have like vignettes of some of the more traumatic experiences, they don't really go in depth, I think. And for me growing up, that made me, I wish I wasn't, 
I lament that it wasn't until my adulthood that I started learning more about my family's history because it made me, because I learned my family's history, it made me appreciate where I was born, where I hold citizenship. Because just by, you know, if things were just slightly different, I would have had a very different life and not have had the opportunities and freedoms that I do. And so um, for me, you know, I tell what I, my message to Portlanders is I, I don't have the same luxury as them to view uh, Marxist ideologies, particularly revolutionary types, uh, revolutionary Marxist ideologies with the same rose-colored glasses. Like these people, for them, it's, uh, it's just theoretical. They have no experience and no connection to people who know what it's like to live through one. Yes, we, we've got the same thing in, in Europe. That yes. a, lot, a lot of the people who are people who are most immune to to the idea that communism hasn't been tried properly yet are people from the former eastern bloc people from poland places like that you know you look at you look at hungary look at look at look at poland um czech republic places like that they don't they don't want any of this kind of well they don't want any of the soft totalitarianism of the european union which they see as a kind of version of the soviet union and they don't buy into the idea of, of, of big government and, and fascist movements and communist movements because they've seen it all before and they, and they think it's, it's, it's bad news. Um, I have a question for yeah. you as an Englishman. Oh, yeah. Did it surprise you to see that milkshaking phenomenon spread so quickly from Britain to the US? Totally, totally not. And one of the things I, I found quite disgusting but not at all surprising given how the left rolls um, was the way that mainstream leftist commentators made light of I can't remember who it was who said that that, that that it was I think one person described it as ludic that's right some female commentator some sort of guardian guardian commentator described it as ludic you know, like like wanky word for, for wanky university word for, for, for playful um, actually, having said that, I've just used ludic in one of my pieces I've just written, but in a different way. Um, but yeah, it, it seems to me that all this justification for violence is coming from the left, not the right. I don't know. I don't know of any right-wing commentator, not even not even evil far-right Nazi bastards who write for Breitbart like me, um, that we don't like the idea of political violence. None of us ever, ever endorses it. We think it's disgusting, horrible. We, we abhor it. Whereas for people like Owen Jones, to pluck an example from the air, Owen Jones, the, the cuddly bush baby go-to guy for the BBC whenever they want a, a bit of edgy left-wing politics, there's Owen Jones popping up, you know, like, like, like a little jack-in-the-box. And as you know, he's advocated violence on several occasions for, for, the, for the right kind of people, you know, mm -hmm. like Nazis. But it seems to me that the definition of Nazi on the left these days is anyone to the right of Bernie Sanders, pretty much. Um, now, you showed a sort of certain admirable, well, no, generous, I would say, magnanimous solidarity with Owen Jones when he was allegedly attacked recently by a far-right gang. But 
as far as I've seen, we've had no evidence that, that he was targeted by a far-right gang. It could just have been a, a night out in the pub that, that, that went a bit wrong. Are you any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think as a defender of the presumption of innocence for people who are accused of crimes, I think the flip coin of that is people who are, um, say they're victims, we need to give them the presumptions that they're telling the truth as well, rather than, you know, coming out and believing that right away that they're lying. So I want to show Mr. Owen's good goodwill in that I'm taking him on his word that he was the victim of politically motivated violence, in which case him and anybody who expresses any views through what they say or what they write, I to that can never be a pretext in a, in a liberal democracy for accepting violence against individuals, ever. And my, my concern that what I'm seeing in Portland is, Portland is a, a harbinger of what happens when that, when the support for violence against people you find to have odious views, when, when that belief is, is normalized and mainstream, you have then people who not just participate in the violence on the streets against people, but celebrate it, encourage it, and welcome it. And there's so many variables in this that's making it the problem that we're seeing. For example, you know, I think it's like the far right obviously has a history that is uh, burnt into our, our consciousness of what that looks like in, in terms of when it's um, the brutality of that type of violence. Well, you're talking yeah. about the Nazis now? Yes. Right, okay, so, so we've got the that Nazis. example from history, but that was, what, 1933 to 1945? That was, that was a while ago. Yes. Yet, yet it seems to me that even more so than us nostalgics who love a bit of, a bit of World War II to, um, you know, weaponry and, and, and heroics and stuff, uh, it, it's almost as though the left really, really needs World War Two to justify their their ongoing fight against this enemy that no longer exists. I went I once went by way of a digression. I once went to Tirana in Albania before when the country had just opened up. I was on the second flight allowed from the West into Albania. So this was just after Enver Hoxha had, had, had gone and it was it was still a complete communist hellhole, a bit like, like North Korea or whatever. And the biggest tourist attraction, indeed the only tourist attraction in Tirana at the time, was the museum. And the museum consisted of room after room of exhibits showing the, the epic struggle against the fascists. And this was all the left had, really. It, it, it was like, OK, so we're living in, in complete squalor. We've got no property rights. We're miserable. The food's absolutely horrible. Uh, no, one, no one want to live here. But, but it's all worthwhile because we fought the fascists. And I wonder whether that isn't what's going on, on now, this idea of punching a Nazi. I mean, where did, where did that one go? That was presumably an American idea, this... this, this yeah, that started because uh, during when uh, the, the alt-right um, figure, Richard Spencer, was giving an interview of that video where somebody um, ran up and hit him in his head. And because that, that became a very uh, viral moment, people thought it was funny because his views are 
deplorable, so therefore this violence against him was justified. Uh, it's it was the same thing with the kind of like how with the milkshaking. I I think you know you described how one of your uh, commentators described it in Britain and in America. A lot of our commentators described it as a cute form of political dissent. Yeah, yeah, cute. And it's like it's like milkshaking is actually really insidious because in a mob setting, when somebody throws that on you, it marks you as the person a target for everybody else. So there was a lot of people on the 29th of June who didn't know who I was, at least by my face. Maybe they knew my name, but they nice. didn't know what I looked like. But once the first person started throwing that at me, then everybody was like, that's the guy. I'm it's like when wasps attack and they spray you with that, with that pheromone or something, which, which, which is a signal to all its other bastard friends to come and attack you too. That's a good analogy. I didn't know yeah. that about that. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, unless I made that up, but it, <laughs> it ought to be true, even yeah. if it's not, because that's, that's how those stripy bastards roll. Um, but look, it's an assault on your person, whether it's a, a milkshake or a fist. Apart from anything else, it's a nasty, sticky, sugary substance, even if it hasn't got... What Didn't your milkshake attack have stuff added to it? So that was a... The, 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 where that claim came from was the Portland police. They had issued a statement on Twitter saying that one, that they had come across information that some of the milkshakes may have had um, dry cement mixed into it. And, and that caused a big frenzy with people on the left accusing the Portland police of lying. Portland police issued clarifications that one of the lieutenants, left, lieutenants had noticed on one of the cups the smell, consistency, and feel of dry, uh, of quick drying cement. Yeah. So they were, they were trying to be cautious and to warn people that potentially that's what some of the drinks may have had mixed in. However, it was never conclusively confirmed. No samples were gathered. That's a mistake by the Portland police. The stuff that was thrown on me, however, um, I mean, that's been collected as evidence. So we'll see if, you know, a lab can determine exactly what all that stuff is. Because what I do recall happening is that when all that stuff was being thrown on my face, it was burning a lot right. in, in, a, in sensation. In a way that you know? milkshakes don't, don't normally. Yeah. But at the same time, I had been punched and there were abrasions all over my face as well. So it's hard to say. Um, we'll see where the evidence leads. Yeah. But are you going to be okay? I mean, what, what, what does your treatment entail? Do you have to have blood clots drained or anything like that? No, no. Fortunately, my, um, I was discharged from the hospital after 30 hours um, because I, the doctors kept monitoring me every hour. And then depending on if you pass or fail some of these cognitive tests that they have, that would tell them if they needed to do further tests on my head or on my brain. And I was progressing in a way that they they were pleased with. Right. So um, fortunately, yeah, I didn't. They didn't have to do any um, serious surgery. But the the serious recovery for me have things been related to various. Um, I call them like cognitive hiccups. So uh, it's issues with balance, issues with memory, issues with, and like in in one of my recent. Um, speech therapies this was quite shocked to me the therapist was showing me images of common objects like cups or a dog or a cat or a pencil 
And then she matches my time in being able to say what it is. And almost, most of them I did fine. And some of them, I knew what the object was, but I couldn't recall the word. I was just like, this thing is used, is the, where you hang your clothes on. I couldn't recall what it was called, right. for example. Um, and that was just like, so that brought my score down and showed that I needed further treatment. But it was just that, that it made me so like sad that um, a, a journalist living and working in a major American city would be attacked in this way. Nobody's yeah. held to account. And that it's still happening. Well, yeah. yeah. Do you not have a case against Portland police? I mean, surely they have a duty of care to protect citizens, especially citizens being assaulted right under their noses. So, well, I have a lawyer and a legal nonprofit that's taken me on because I believe that my civil rights were violated. But, uh, you know, I'll withhold from saying, you know, accusations. We right. need to, we're at, the, we're at the point now where we're gathering evidence, which is why there's the legal funds. So to the listeners here, if you want to, to help me seek justice, please join the legal fund. Where do they find your legal fund? What's it called? It's Publius Lex, P-U-B-L-I-U-S-L-E-X-U-S dot com. And that link is also on my social media. Right. Mm -hmm. So that'll be a while while they're gathering, well, making the case. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, and what about the bigger picture? What, what do you think should be done to Antifa? Can anything be done? Yes. So in America... Um, there's really no such thing in the legal sense of designating a group a domestic terrorist organization. Uh, um, free speech protections are so wide and broad that that would raise certain constitutional issues. So you may have been seeing things that Donald Trump or other politicians are saying. It's kind of... I. I welcome the attention and publicity that it brings on Antifa, but I think what people need to recognize is Antifa is not a, an, an organization, it's an ideology and movement. It's made up of many different groups. I think what politically needs to happen is that the FBI and other authorities that investigate um, terrorism and criminal activities, they need to look at Antifa ideology in the same way they look at uh, neo-Nazi and uh, anti-government movements. You know, like it's, they can't ban those groups. We, um, there's no such thing in the U.S. as like a prescribed group. But if the, if the investigators and authorities are better able to understand the ideology, then they can look and see which groups are espousing it to monitor the activities. Because it's really, it's about the actions, the criminal actions here that is key. And they are engaged in criminal activities and they have money and they have sources of funding. These are all things that need to be investigated and uncovered. I mean, what, what fascinates me is all these events that uh, Rose City Antifa and their allies keep organizing it costs money in the sense that they have their own uniform is like printed with their logos, for example, or they have their own logo, logo printed masks. Um, they have their shields and other weapons that is like is given out to their members. And we need to find out where is this money coming from? I mean, I 
some of the events well, have been George Soros, obviously. <laughs> I mean, isn't everything? Oh, I don't know. But yeah, I can, I can, I can, I can imagine this. Well, there's so many left-wing slush funds, aren't there? There are. So th- that's the thing. Like I, you know, I'm bringing up the uh, non nonprofit that's t- representing me because um, the legacy civil rights organizations have left behind and forgotten a segment of the American population. I think because these groups have become so partisan that they're advocating really for left-wing issues in in the clients that they're willing to take on. It's a bit like the the the, the Southern Poverty Law Center which exactly. which presumably was it ever a, a kosher organization did it ever have a was it ever reasonable I don't know but presumably it's got it's got even more far left than it was originally. Yeah, some people I mean they have done good work, which they need to be given credit for. I think the issue with SPLC, particularly from a jo- as a journalist, is that its methodology in identifying hate groups is really flawed. And they've gotten it wrong many times of where they've had to issue um, corrections as well as they've been sued before by, well, Majid Nawaz, which you may have heard about that. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That was, that was great. Uh, they the system that they have set up is basically you know they they're funded through donors and they have hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank literally and so the more that they're able to make americans fear hate in america the more donations they get so they have all the incentives in the world to really make it look like there are so many um violent right-wing extremists in the US. You mentioned the word hate. Hate seems to have been redefined by the left from being a motion of, of directed anger to mean basically conservative people who are alive and breathing. And pretty much any, any conservative or anyone who's not on the left who's alive is, is the embodiment of hate. Isn't that, isn't that the new... The way things work nowadays. Yeah, I think that so they're against hate. That type of uh, black and white thinking seemed to really come from the grievance uh, disciplines in the universities, but it's been mainstream into society, into American politics and pop culture. In that, like for example, um, you know, having a traditional view on gender, or sex now is seen as hateful. Yeah. Right. So th- yeah. So it's. Um, and unfortunately, like when it was contained within the university, it was one thing. But what we're seeing now is that it's that type of worldview is um, is central. It's ubiquitous, to some politi- isn't it? Ubiquitous and central to not just some politicians, but it's taken root in the Democrat Party, for example. Do you know what's really spooky? Since in in the moments since we were last talking, this has appeared magically on the on the table. Now you and I know why, don't we? Yes. Because we had to because they ran out of batteries, our film <laughs> crew, and they had to but I suddenly thought actually there's interesting things I want to say. One of them is that you're a fan you actually listen to the podcast, don't you? You're a Delling Pod you are you are the special special friend that enjoys the podcast. Yes. Um, and one thing I really don't do enough of is plugs and adverts and money generating things. And I before <laughs> before it's too late the podcast festival, Podcast Live, is coming up on 
October the 5th special listening friend. I think if you Google podcast live and I'm doing a special a special set with Dick and Dick Dallingpole. And I, it, it's possible there will be special guests, but I know one special guest will be a canine special guest. And we're having lots of competitions. And I'm going to give you a sneak preview of one of the competitions. I want to see who can bring the most interestingly famous friend along with them. I mean, I think there'll be prizes. There'll be prizes for the most, the most objectively famous person there. But also there'll be prizes. For example, say you played the drums with, I don't know, Pop Will Eat Itself or something. That would be quite impressive. It'd be quite obscure, but it'd be quite cool, wouldn't it? Or, I don't know, if you were Eddie the Eagle's ski jumping trainer, that would be that would work, wouldn't it? Or if you were in the Jamaican bobsleigh team that was featured in Cool Runnings, I, I guess that would... So, that kind of thing. So, I think we're going to have competitions and fun. And I know that, Andy... If you didn't live in America, you would be there like a shot, wouldn't you? Yes, Good. I would be. I, thank you for that endorsement, which I which I forced out of you. Um, I feel that we haven't made enough of the alleged attack on Owen Jones because I have to say, when I first read, my immediate thought when when I read that Owen Jones had been attacked by by far right alleged far right targeted gang whatever was. Hatred and fury, actually, at the, at, the, at the far-right gang. Because we know how Antifa behave. We know how the left, left roll. They are disgusting. They, 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 they love violence. They believe in it. It's, it. it's very much part of their makeup, which, which, of course, goes back to the violent revolution preached by, by Marx. I mean, I know our friend Brendan O'Neill thinks that Marxism is, is harmless and cuddly, but actually... <laughs> He was preaching violent revolution, wasn't he? That, that in order to, to get the um, ascendancy of the proletariat, you, you, you may need, need violence on, on the way. You can't make an omelette without breaking eggs and all, and all that Leninist crap. But I don't like it when people purporting to represent the conservative point of view commit violence against the left. I think that this is just like giving material to the enemy, giving material to people like, like Owen Jones. So my, that was my immediate response. And I felt the same when... Those people chucked some. Have you heard of Femi Sorry? No. He's a a dick. Um, he wear, he dresses like a kid and appears. He's very he's very violently pro European Union and he appears at all sorts of events and and says pro European things. I think he's being funded by by the EU probably to do this do this kind of stuff. But anyway, he was he was picketing some Brexit party event and some idiots threw some water at him. And I thought, do you realise how stupid you are? You are you are doing what Femi wants. You are giving him the... Oh, go away, phone. You are giving him victimhood material, which the left left craves in order to demonstrate that, that the right is just as evil as the left. And otherwise it wouldn't happen. Um, where was I? Yeah, Owen Jones. So... A lot of a lot of right wing people, a lot of conservative voices have rallied round Owen Jones after his alleged targeted far right attack. But I have this I have this friend in America who I, who is going to get um, he's going to appear on the podcast one day when he comes over. He's a uh, a black American who thinks like he's like my my brother from another mother. He's absolutely, he's totally, he's, he's so sound and right on. And, he, and he, he emails me occasionally and he's, he, he sent me some thoughts about this. I'm just going to try and find his thoughts now because they're quite interesting. 
Um, oh, I know why I can't find it, because I've got podcast in my search field. Um, sorry, listener. <laughs> Special viewing friend. Oh, yeah. He says, he may be wrong, of course. He said, Owen Jones is so devoid of visible injuries after his blatant premeditated attack that it's clear to me he was attacked by vegans. Uh, but on a more serious note, and while I abhor political violence and attacks on journalists, as all decent citizens should, amen to that, I think we can agree, I wonder if I might ask a few questions. How does Mr Jones know that the attack on him was premeditated, indeed? He claimed not just to have been struck from behind, but to have been struck in the back with a flying kick. How does he know how the attack was delivered if it came from behind him? How did Mr Jones come to know the political motivations of his attackers? May we see the information which led him to hit this conclusion? Was any part of this incident captured on CCTV? Now, maybe, maybe I'm being unfair in, in, in reading this stuff out, but here I am talking to a guy who was given brain damage by Antifa, by an obvious far-left gang. They were wearing masks, they were thugs, they were nasty. All you were doing, your only crime was to commit journalism, right? Now, Owen Jones was out in a pub at 3 a.m., he got attacked, and he's telling everybody that these were definitely far-right people. And what's more, this is being picked up by the left as a, an indictment of, of, the, of the right generally. Every conservative is somehow responsible for the attack on, on Owen Jones. Well, I've never endorsed violence, and I'm, I'm not seeing this, this endorsement of violence coming from the conservatives. I mean, are you? Well, so, of course, the, um, the partisans on the left who are ideologues are going to politically exploit the story for their own gain. They do that a lot. I don't know enough of the details about what happened to Mr. Uh, Jones beyond what he has alleged publicly. And I'll, like I said earlier, I'll give him um, the, the goodwill of believing his words. And I would like to see at some point... Um, the police issue more in a, state, a statement perhaps on what they find in their investigation. However, uh, unrelated uh, to what, ha what is alleged to have happened to uh, Owen is that uh, I've written about uh, hate crime hoaxes quite a bit. That's one of the other oh, yeah. beats that I cover that oh, right. inflames a lot of people and makes my critics uh, very angry at me. And I think some of the questions that were asked in the email were spot on, uh, regard, you know, removing Owen from the picture to, to anybody. Yes. But I, th I think those are questions that are particularly important to ask when the uh, victims are also very outspoken political activists. So when some people were asking me, for example, like, um, there were lots of questions about did Andy lie about his injuries and all that. The BuzzFeed did a profile of me and they wanted to see my medical paperwork uh, because they had doubts too. And I thought, okay, you know, like it, on one level, it felt hurtful to, as a victim, that where it was caught on camera to have to like, you know, prove myself again. But I was like, okay, you know, I write about hate crime hoaxes. I think transparency in this is important. I will do that. So I showed that paperwork to the BuzzFeed writer and he included that, uh, um, um, what, what he read from it in, in the BuzzFeed profile. And he was certainly somebody who was critical of me in the piece. So I just... And did, he, did he retract? Did he give you a fair hearing thereafter? Or did he just say, well, I was wrong, but I was kind of right, really? 
Um, the, the piece that he wrote was critical, but it was professional. I think there are honestly some hit pieces that are put out that are truly written in bad faith. Like where the, the purpose, the only purpose is to make, to mold this person into being really like a, a villainous type person. Whereas there can be people who, journalists and writers, either on the right or left, who are critical but fair of the figure of their profile. Fine, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you showed him the documentation yes. and, and he gave you a sort of fair-ish hearing. But sorry, I interrupted. Tell me more about your um, investigations of these, what, what were they called, fake... Fake hate, hate crime, crime hate crime, I yeah. call them hate crime hoaxes or hate hoaxes. Yeah. Um, well, in America, it's such an interesting phenomenon. There's been so many of them. And uh, this is like the, these are the stories that the uh, activists left don't want people to be hearing about because it really, it runs counter to the, the victimhood narrative. Believe the victim, always believe the victim. You know that. It's important to believe the victim, but it's also important to um, keep the, the merits of the accusations at the forefront, right? Sure. So what, what's outrageous about so many of these hate crime hoaxes in America, particularly on university campuses, is that they're so obviously questionable and dubious from the beginning, but like nobody has the, um, has the guts to be asking some of these basic questions of like, um, can you provide some more details other than I, I mean, yeah, like the, the telltale signs of hate crime hoaxes is like it involves frequently a, a political activist, uh, sensational claims, uh, lack of evidence, and often um, a campaign to raise money. So um, I write about these issues because I think I like the the way that people are focusing on hate in America has become, it's like a joke. It's finding offense at the s smallest things and believing the most outrageous of stories like what Jesse Smollett claimed. And it, I think it makes a mockery of people who truly experience um, hate crimes. Well, sure. So you're saying that Jesse Smollett was just the tip of the iceberg. He's just yes, absolutely. And when you when you so tell me how you go about investigating these hate crime hoaxes. So probably the the best writer on hate crime hoaxes from like a academic um, perspective it would be Professor Wilfred Riley, and I have interviewed him numerous times. So he sought to quantify hate crime hoaxes in America. In, in, in his database, he has hundreds from just 20, uh, from the past few years. And it's way more than are being reported. I think a lot of them, what happens is that um, they get the initial large focus in the media on the allegations of the, the hate crime. And then once it's reviewed to be uh, a hoax or likely a hoax, there's just kind of very little attention. Um, some of the patterns that he finds from his, his data and the, when I reviewed it is that they're disproportionately happening among university students. So those uh, arguably who are the most privileged in societies are the ones who are feeling so oppressed that they will manufacture instances of repression for attention. 
And is there a breakdown of gender or race or religion or is it across the board? I have to, well, this is a sensitive topic because in terms of the religion, um, Professor uh, Wilfred Riley did find that Muslims uh, overrepresented in terms of Asian. Well, that's why because I, I just recalled the yeah. the incident where the the girl came to have been attacked because she was wearing a hijab or something, and and it it it, it, it provoked. There's the been kind, many of those. Claims. It provoked the yeah. similar sense of outrage that the Owen Jones thing did. It was like you, you know everyone was was offended, and and there was a kind there's something that conservatives do. And and we talked about this in the car on the way here, didn't we? About how there is nothing that conservatives enjoy more than demonstrating how sweetly reasonable they are and how they bend over backwards to accommodate, or, which which is which is a fair enough defence mechanism given the shit that conservatives get. But at the same time, conservatives are first onto the outrage bus over these incidents, and often what they're doing is adding fuel to a fire, which is a fake fire. Yeah, I think because um, the left, you know, ha- has has won the uh, the culture war. It's just there's such a perception in the mainstream that people who identify as conservative or who vote in, in American context who vote Republican, they so many people view them as as bad people that there's this desire reflexively yes. to uh, um, to broadcast, hey, we're we're decent people. We're going to condemn violence against even people, you know, violence against people we disagree with, yeah. whoever. And uh, it does oftentimes lead, lead them to jump on false positives or things that turn out to be hoaxes. Uh, and that's embarrassing for them. But uh, understandably, I guess, um, I I do understand the argument that you want to tread more carefully on um on being sensitive to the claims of somebody who says they are a victim of some type of hate crime or violence. Yes. I, I understand that. And it's it's unfortunate that um, so many hate crime hoaxes have made people now cynical and skeptical of, acu- of people who come out and say they're, you know, when they say they're a victim, legitimately a victim. And there's now always kind of this... This cloud of doubt over it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Wasn't Mattress Girl? Wasn't she? Wasn't that one of the? Um, that the, was the notorious hate hoax. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Or things like that, and and I, I'm sure the UVA of, rape. There's so many. Do you um, not think one of the reasons that Milo had to be taken down was because he was very hot on things like Mattress Girl? He was very good at calling out the left, and he had to he had to be destroyed. Because so I have you know my disagreements with Milo's style, but putting that aside, I think he became a figure that was like the number one target for the establishment um, media because he was effective. He was effective at reaching young people at universities. Um, he was a, he'd become a cartoon character, and and he descri- in the early days when he was inventing himself, he described this this process to me. He said, you know, 
I'm going to get this my my hair blonde. And he modelled. He, he was very pleased when he appeared as a as a, a cartoon character in a graphic novel. And it, this is always part of the game plan. And I think it's a, it's quite a good way of packaging conservative ideas in the form of a a, a graphic novel. Because after all, graphic novel readers, um, at least readers of graphic novels that haven't been written by talentless female hacks who've just been given their jobs because they're female and they're woke. Um, I think they tend to be young men who are open to the possibility of of conservative ideas. Do you think that, like, conservatism is is so, it it comes from such a long line of intellectualism. Do you find that this new form of way of reaching young people tramples on that intellectual tradition? I don't give a fuck about the intellectual tradition, actually. I, I, I think, I think, do you know, and I'm, I'm really glad you're asking me some questions because actually I, I, I hate these things to be one-way, one-way interviews. Um, is that I'm really not interested in, um, in definitions of what conservatism is. Mm. Because it seems to me that when I've read, read attempts about what conservatism is, they often involve what I consider to be tedious centrist bollocks like conservatism is whatever the, the, the Conservative Party in, the, in, the, in Britain currently believes and that we're a broad church and, and, and one nation conservatism and stuff like this, which is not where I'm coming from. I think we're fighting a war. I mean, a, 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 the, cult, the culture wars, I think, are, are, are what, what really matter at the moment. I don't think parties, political labels matter. And I don't think ideological labels matter because I mean what am I am I am I a South Park conservative am I a libertarian am I a classical liberal I don't really know and am I am I alt-right I maybe I was alt-right before Richard Richard Spencer came along and ruined the ruined the the labels I I find are unhelpful but I think what is it we, we we should all believe I think we should all believe in 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 liberty um in limited government in lower taxes in in free speech i think there are certain things that ought to be obvious i think we 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 should all abhor political violence i don't know what was the question again i don't even remember but i mean with what you're saying it leads me to another question like a moment ago we, we, we were discussing how many prominent conservatives would be very quick to uh, condemn their own side or to, yeah. to virtue signal against their chucking, own side. Chucking bits of meat, chucking the children to the wolves so that the sled can move faster over the, over the snow. But don't, don't you find that that could actually be a strength because self-introspection is really important. I find that ideologues on the left, are, most of them, maybe not most of them, some of them, prominent ones, are so unwilling to that, for example, it, let's say bringing it back to Antifa, unable to condemn Antifa. There's just out of um, the, uh, the on the Democrat side, those who are running for president as candidates, uh, there were only three who came out to express a, uh, solidarity for me. I see, I see your point. Yeah. That, yeah, the left is quite incapable of, of condemning even extremes where the conservatives... But, but the thing is, where are these extremes that conservatives should properly condemn I and mean, what did there's a there's a thing for having a go lots of conservatives in this country love to to um distance themselves from katie hopkins mm-hmm. say or 
yeah, Milo, when he was a thing, they distanced themselves from Milo. But I'm thinking, look, if Milo or Katie Hopkins said something or did something really objectionable, then you would condemn the objectionable thing that they said or did. But to sort of write them off from the argument, because it's convenient to do so, seems to me to be cowardly and, and wrong. It's a bit like saying during a war, you know, well, I don't mind conventional forces, you know, um, regular troops, but special forces, some of the shit they do is just really nasty. You know, is it really fair going and cutting the throats of sentries and blowing up, blow, or machine gunning them in their, their beds like the, the SAS did in, in, in the Western Desert to, you know. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, look, you need all sorts of, of, of talents with different skills in a war. And, and um, I mean, actually, the, the analogy is not quite right because obviously Milo and Katie Hopkins aren't going around slitting throats and stuff. But, but I, 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 do, I do worry about my side's, our side's tendency to throw our most effective fighters to the wolves in order just to appease the enemy. I think that, that, that's wrong. I wanted to ask you, I suddenly remembered, tell me about Proud Boys. I know nothing about Proud Boys. Are they, are they far right? What? Who are they? Often described as far right. I I describe them as right wing because far right carries certain connotations, and I'm more careful about using that term. Uh, I don't think that they are a hate group, as SPLC calls them, and it's. In my experience in interviewing them and spending time with them when I work on stories related to some of the protests that they uh, organize, they, they're made up of primarily working class men who a lot of them have not had the privilege of a university a, education. Correct. And are not careful with their language so they express themselves in a way that is really cross and can easily be seen as extremely offensive and i think because those statements they you know post uh either on their personal social media or things that they say in interviews it's really easy for journalists from new york or dc when they're interviewing them for some big mainstream story to cast them as um extremists when Really, they're a drinking club, and they ha their views are were the West is great and uh, the traditionalists. I think the language you could argue is uh, problematic, and that many some of them have been um, charged for 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 brawling and fighting uh, across the United States. So there's a violent element of that that comes. I think. Uh, I'm not sure if it comes so much from the group's ideology rather than just the fact that it's a group of young men who are um, acting sometimes as a group and when it's like in a setting of like Antifa coming to fight, they're coming to finish the fight. And so it's a, you know, I get so much uh, pushback from uh, people online for my nuanced view on the Proud Boys because they really view them as like violent white supremacists and I think like um, I mean in the US we 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 do have like a fringe of violent white supremacists and those are very very different from what the Proud Boys are both in ideologies and their actions and how they organize so to group them all together under the same love 
in same label I think is unhelpful I think it's inaccurate um, and it feels also it, it, it feels radicalization on the far left as well because the people a lot of the people who who are coming to these demonstrations are not not necessarily in support of Antifa it's more of like they really believe the rhetoric of the the stuff that's put out that there are violent white supremacists coming to Portland let's as decent people come to show that we're not going to welcome them um, and I think some of those those labels that are placed on the Proud Boys, I think, are frequently inaccurate. I think um, there's many things to be critical of them. Let's be accurate in our criticism rather than resorting to uh, hy- inflammatory hyperbole yeah. or, or relying so much on the SPLC, who, as we said earlier, has a incentive structure to overplay and exaggerate the threat of, the, of right-wing extremism in the U.S. for funding purposes. Right, yes. So, um, presumably, I mean, when the Proud Boys send a little tiny bus of, of what, maybe a dozen Proud Boys into Portland, it's a bit like when you're a kid and you see a wasp's nest and you get some stones and you you chuck it in the wasp nest and then run like hell. Presumably it's that kind of buzz. It's, it, it, it's more that. You, you've chosen the most progressive, is your word, um, lefty, hard left even, town in America probably, and you're going right into the, the hornet's nest, aren't you? Yes, that's what they're doing. It, their events are meant to be provocative. Yeah. And people, I mean, in the opening state, that that's why they do it, because... They're making a stand for free speech. They want to show that they, as American citizens, uh, regardless of city, can host an event anywhere and, sh- and should be uh, free from violence from other people, violence and repression. And that, j- just as a principled statement, is something I agree with. To me, like, um, you know, my, my, apart from like my personal disagreements with whatever extreme groups on the right or left, like, it's really none of my business if people are assembling lawfully and peacefully. So, um, you know, whether they, it be from people from the right or people from the left. So it's, Portland has a problem now. Of like they really believe in this idea of when they say self-defense, it's meaning we're going to come out and physically confront these people. Yeah, preemptive self-defense. Preemptive self-defense, <laughs> by yeah. any means necessary, literally some of them with weapons. and. The stuff that happened on the 17th of August just um, this past weekend was some of them came with concrete, slabs of concrete that they broke. Uh, this was Antifa and used it to hurl at the, the bus uh, that these um, right-wingers were in. You know, the, one of the videos that went viral showed them at, um, sort of mobbing the people inside the bus and spraying bear mace inside. It's important to note that one of the the men inside the bus did have a hammer. I think it could be argued from the context of everything that was happening with things being thrown out the bus that it was potentially self-defense. I don't know. Um, But, I mean, like, there are people on both sides coming with weapons. And it's like, this is like just the breakdown of the rule of law when people feel emboldened either to um, bring weapons to attack people or feeling like in order just to speak and assemble peacefully, we have to come armed with whatever melee weapons to potentially fight back against people who want to kill us. Like, 
this is something that it can no longer continue in this in the, in the city of Portland and it seems like based on the statements that the city officials have said after the this past riot is that they've learned nothing it was just like sounds like it yeah yeah it's, it's gonna get I, I can't see any it ending anytime soon do do you have any thoughts on Charlottesville yes I think it was a disgusting di- display that harkens back to a very ugly history in America at the same time the number of people who gathered for that is that was actually very small and it was like an in it what it was it was a national calling for all these alt-right people to come together and at their best they could only amass a small number of people i think in that instance you could look at it as a failure of policing because um what led to uh, the murder of heather higher when she was hit um by the the car driven by the um james fields who was convicted and sentenced for that killing was that the way the police had had have failed in keeping the group separated so there were people who came ready for physical confrontation mm. and it happened and it led to a death and it was entirely preventable should have been preventable um was was Charlottesville an Antifa versus um, far right? I mean, were they? I don't know enough about it. Were the the right wing people nasty right wing people, or were they? Yes, they were. Yeah, they were. Yeah, even a lot of um, just a lot of right wing figures uh, did not show up to that event because there was the fringe far right who were there. Right. Okay. And. Um, yeah, we need to make that very clear. And, you know, some of the chants that were coming out were anti-Semitic, racist, and these were hardcore white nationalists, really those advocating for blood and soil, keeping okay. that type of rhetoric. And so um, I think, you know, on one hand, there was this, you could argue that it was... Um, noble and for the Amer for such a strong counter protest to show that this type of presence here is not welcome. However, when you're responding to speech with physical violence that's crosses a barrier. It's no longer like I mean if the other side had if their own counter demonstrations remained a counter demonstration rather than a desire for physical confrontation then uh, things would have been very different, but um, just because of how polarized America is, there are people who who want bloodshed. So, should I mean, did 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 Trump misplay that one? Would you say? Oh gosh, I don't know if I should weigh in. Um, we don't have to. Well, I what I see is that he's he's been misquoted uh, as a norm now. Like every time he is whether it be Joe Biden or whoever, yeah. they, they misquote him intentionally as, as saying that, both the, that white nationalists were equal with those who came out to oppose him. I don't think based on the full context of what he was saying as part of the largest speech, that's what he was saying. Um, so I think people are being disingenuous and, and purposely misquoting him for political reasons. Um, it's... Right, you don't, you don't have to, you don't get any further than that. The, the, uh, the um, you mentioned that 
uh, Antifa has an ideology. Yes. What, what is it? So they're made up of anarcho-communists. And I'm trying to better understand this ideology because it seems like it would be contradictory, but it's this symbiotic relationship between extreme anarchists and hardcore communists. And the violence that they do on the street is actually towards furthering their goal. They're actually trying to agitate for a revolution. So from the outside, it may seem like just stupid street violence and vandalism, but they really believe that we are living in the latter days of fascism and the, the conflict is going to happen in the future by, by bringing these um, brutal forms of violence either against the state, individuals or property. It's instead of inching closer and closer and closer to that climatic battle, it's going to make us run quicker there. Oh, okay. So they really do, like their hardcore ideologues really believe they're part of a vanguard that's going to usher in this revolution. Most of the people who describe themselves as anti-fascists aren't really aware of the extremist ideology, but if you look at the literature that they have, that they disperse at some of their book fairs, at their meetings. They have book fairs? Yeah, there are anarchist book fairs. There's a lot of very extremist literature there. Um, I mean, you could, you know, we have uh, authorities or, or academics have the frameworks for researching uh, violent extremist ideologies, and I would like to see that apply to Antifa. I think in some ways in how they organize, recruit, and radicalize many parallels with like Islamism as well. So um, I don't see them as just a benign movement of so-called anti-fascists. I mean, I, I don't even give them that propaganda win of calling them anti-fascists. Like, I say Antifa because it's, um, I want to separate that from anti-fascism, which, yeah. you know, to the, the average person would sound like a very noble thing. Yeah, well, well of course, and, right. and that, that, it was ever thus. I mean, I think the hard left has often tried to start to brand itself anti-fascist, and that goes back at least as far as Stalin. I mean, the red in the Nazi flag, is the red of communism. That's how, that's how close they were. If you were living in Germany in the 19, early 1930s and you were unemployed and angry and, and male, it was a, pretty much a toss-up whether you joined the, the, the fascists or the communists or the Nazis. They were... Yeah, and another thing that I want to say is like Antifa as a movement, they're really great at doublespeak. So you see in the name itself, Antifa, and it trickles down to everything else. So like the physical... Dif uh, um, self-defense, right, is actually pre preemptive, premeditated violence. Yeah. Um, like, and I mean, it, it's a tradition that they actually do take from from co communism. Like, you know, one example I can think of is that um, the the Berlin Wall. The propaganda, the title for that was the anti-fascist defense barrier. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, this is the type of double speak that the, the most of the public are not aware of, and you know, in Antifa's worldview, there's no room for the Labour Party or the Democrat Party either. They they absolutely hate parties. They're not they're not any, they're not liberal in any way. They they hate the um, the politics of the of the liberal parties as much as they do conservatives. In that um, they they view them as just all of the same system, uh, under the same systems and structures of the oppression. 
That's going to be our pull-out quote, that Antifa are not liberal. I think a lot of people would be very surprised to hear that. Are you, are you, are you, are you going to, um, are you safe in, in Portland? I mean, it's your home, but... It, uh, unfortunately, I've been docs and I'm still receiving ongoing types of violence that all of which have been reported to police, by the way. So yeah. I write all about hate crime hoaxes. One of the, the red flags of somebody who could be lying is that they don't they refuse to report it to authorities. I've reported everything to police and um, some of the threats are, are really scary. And it's a bit surreal, like living there now and I go out and I get recognized. I, it comes with a certain amount of anxiety. I mean, some of the attention is positive, some of it's negative. And the fact that some of these extremists know where my family lives is, is scary. It's meant to really intimidate me into silence. Um, you know, it just, I wasn't, you know, I, ha I was living a normal life not that long ago and now things have changed a lot. So um, I don't know how much longer I can stay in Portland because of that. It's, I, I, Andy, I think this is really sad, and I, I think what you're doing is incredibly heroic, and, and it's, it's, it's been very interesting meeting you and discovering just how kind of um, unobtrusive and, and, and mild you are. I mean, I think what you've, what you've done is extraordinary, and, and I, I, I really hope that you... Do you I mean, do you get appreciation? you get support from, for what you do? I do, and a lot of hate. I think, well, 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 here's how I see it now. I, I think that the, the, the hate that's really coordinated, particularly from like a, a lot of journalists who uh, identify as left-wing or leftists or socialists, is that I, I, because I'm a reasonable person, they view me as somebody who is really threatening because I can reach out. What, the things that I write and say can have an appeal to moderate liberals, moderate Democrats, and yeah. they find that as a threat. You know, it's like it's much easier to demonize me as a fringe, violent extremist on the far right, which I'm not. And so, um, I think they're going they're going forward. What I'm seeing is they're doing everything they can to really try to frame me as such. I'm just thinking that if if you're gay. Um, all the all the gay areas in America are basically left wing strongholds, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. So not only am I persona non grata in Portland, I'm persona non grata uh, in the gay. Community. Yeah, you couldn't go to the village or, um, or Castro. Castro. Yeah, exactly. Castro. I mean, that's really left wing, isn't it? Yeah. Berkeley. I'm so sorry. What about New Orleans? Uh, Doesn't anything go in New Orleans? I, I thought, I've been there a long time ago when I did uh, Kuchina Relief, so I was working with the charity. So I, at that time, I, I didn't do any of uh, the gay tourism, so I don't know what it's well, like. I'm, I'm sure it's dried out since then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's been really good talking to you, and thank you very much. It's been an absolute privilege and pleasure to hit, meet a real hero. Thank you. Put it there, dude. Well, that's it for another week. Um, special listening friend, special viewing friend. Um, don't forget to come... Have I mentioned the podcast festival? There's no reason not to mention it again. Um, London... What's it called? Podcast Live on October the 5th. Dick, um, possibly a dog, special, uh, lots of special friends. It's going to be fun. It's going to be real. So book your tickets now and use the special code, which I'll give you one day uh, when I can be bothered.
Thanks. Bye-bye.